Hey, Parkview, I'm at a big convention this week uh, that, you know, I was in charge of three years ago, and it's been a lot of fun. And, and I, I, you know, I, I wanted to invite somebody special in to preach this weekend because I can't be there. And I met this guy here. He's got this new book. It's doing really, really good. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Casey Tigrant. And so he's preaching here this weekend, and here's the I deal, okay? I, I, I am so tired of you guys clapping every time Todd Clark gets here because he's getting a real big head because you clap for him all the time. So hey, what's up, Park you? Hey, I just want to welcome this weekend a big welcome to Casey. Uh, so clap louder than you ever <laughs> clap for this guy, okay? Will you please welcome Casey Tigrett? It's good to know that some things don't change, huh? I'm so glad to be here with you all. Good to see you. If you're watching online, thanks for, thanks for watching. Man, if you're wondering what that was all about, like you're like, who is this guy? What's this all about? Uh, I was on staff here at Parkview for about seven and a half years and just left this past October to go to Heartland Community Church in Rockford, Illinois to be their teaching pastor. And so uh, it's really good to be back. It's really good to see everybody, a lot of familiar faces. Uh, that's what's one thing that's happened. The other thing that's happened for me in the last year is I got a chance to write a book. And this book is uh, about questions. It's called Becoming Curious, a spiritual practice of asking questions, because I really do believe that God is interested in the questions that we have. I believe they're important. And I believe they're important because they're important to us as human beings. And the interesting thing that I found out as I was talking about this book and as I was starting to look at things was, if you look at children, children between the ages of birth and four years old ask 300 to 400 questions a day. Like 95% of that is just the word why, right? Why? 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 These are important questions. But after that, after four years old, that drops off tremendously all the way through the rest of our life. And by the time we get all grown up, we kind of lose track of our curiosity. And maybe it's because we're too busy. We just don't have time for it. Maybe it's because, you know, we have Google. Like, what questions do you really have? If you have Google, you can find out whatever you want. I think sometimes, too, it's because we don't want anybody to think we don't have our stuff together. Because if you ask a question, it means you don't know. And if you don't know, it means that you haven't figured everything out. And the last thing we'd want anybody to think is that we haven't figured things out. And yet, it seems like God, through the story of the Bible, is desperately more interested in our curiosity than our certainty. Because at one point, Jesus actually says this. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not about whether you're allowed to be there. It's about the fact that maybe, just maybe, you need to become like 300 to 400 question a day kids to understand what God is up to and to come into this big and beautiful new story that he's telling. I believe that God is way more interested in the questions of our lives, the questions that bother us, the questions that haunt us, the things that we're uncertain about. And I want to try and deal with one of those questions today a little bit. Because it's one that I think is really important. So I was interviewing for a job, and they asked me in this job interview to fill out a psychological profile. Like I had to take this test to make sure I wasn't unstable. Results are mixed. So, so I took this thing, and, and then they said, okay, you're not going to be able to get the results. You've got to go to a place, and they're going to tell you what your results were. 
And so I went to this place and drove there. And, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, all right, I really want this job, so I'm going to go and I'm going to wow him. It's going to be great. So I sit down in the room, and the guy who's going to read the test walks into the room. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but somebody comes in the room and the vibe changes. Like the temperature goes down 10 degrees, and you're like, ooh. Something not right is happening here. And so he sits down across from me, and he just starts pelting me with questions. Um, And I try my best to answer, and after every answer, he's like, well, why do you think that? And not in like I'm a curious, not like I want to know more, in like a who do you think you are? And so we go on with this, and the whole time I'm like, I'm going to blow it, I'm going to blow it, this is awful, this is no good. And finally he asks me a question, and I answer, and he goes, who do you think you are? raised his voice. And it's at that moment, I desperately wish, looking back on it, I wish I'd had the frame of mind. Because that's the moment I'd like to look at him and gone, I'm Batman. <laughs> right, because you only get one shot at that. You only get one chance in life to do that and just drop the mic and walk out of the room. And I tried, but I tried, I didn't do the Batman thing. I tried to answer, I tried to be honest about it. And then I left, I got in the car, and I'm driving home. And I'm like, that was awful and I'm not going to get this job and blah, 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 blah. So I get home and I talk to my wife and she interviews people for a living. And I told her about everything that happened and I was like, honey, it's awful, da, 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 da. And she says, Casey, there was a stress interview. I said, what? She goes, they wanted to see how you performed under pressure. And I said, would have been nice to know that going in. But what I find important about that question is that all of us are facing that question almost on a daily basis. Everyone around us is asking us, who do you think you are? When you post a photo online, people want to know, show us your vacation pictures. Show us what you've been eating lately. Show us that you're somebody. Who do you think you are? When we get dressed up again to go out on another first date, hoping that we'll finally find the one, we go on to that date from a place of answering the question, who do I think I am? When our families and our relationships get rocky and lopsided, we address those challenges from the place of who we think we are. It is a crucial question. Where does our identity come from? Who do you think you are? And there are a lot of different ways we can determine that, but honestly... I want to go to a story from the life of Jesus that helps us wrestle with this question. But in order to do that, i got to nerd out on you for a second. Is that okay? Doesn't matter. It's going to happen anyway because I don't have anything else. <laughs> Jesus takes his disciples on a two-day walk, which, by the way, if you've never done a two-day walk, whew, takes his disciples on a two-day walk to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the Mediterranean, and it's a, it's a city that has a long history. It once was called Peneus, and the name of the city came from the fact that they believed the uh, god Pan. And if you don't know what Pan is, he's like this half goat, half man. He looks like he's got like the barbed wire tattoo in this picture. He looks really hardcore. So they thought Pan actually lived in a cave there, and so they would go to this city to worship him, and that's why they named the city Peneus. But when the Romans took over, they renamed the city, and they renamed it after two guys. One guy's name was Philip the Tetrarch. And Philip was an arrogant local government guy. Apparently, Philip was a huge fan of Philip because he named a city after himself. And the other name was from a guy named Caesar Augustus, who was the ruthless emperor of the Roman Empire. So if you'd ask these two guys, who do you think you are? They were like, dude, we've got a city named after us. Who do we think we are? Who do you think you are? We're winning. Hashtag winning. And so into that city, this arrogant, identity-driven kind of city, Jesus brings his disciples and they camp right outside the city. And as they get there, he steps in and he asks them this question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now this was a title that Jesus would use for himself. So when he sits down with them, he's saying, who do people say that, who do people think that I am? Now I don't think Jesus was insecure 
I don't think he was like, what are people saying? Do they like me? Do they like what I'm wearing? My hair? Is my beard okay? I don't think he's about that at all. I think what he's trying to teach people is this. If you draw breath on this earth for any amount of time, people are going to have opinions about you. People are going to have expectations for you. So what do people think? What are you hearing about me? And I love the response that they give. This is what they say. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now this is important because it's not just about what people think. It's not just the names they use. These guys, his disciples, name like the rock stars of the history of the faith. But it's not just that they think you're that guy. It's also you come with the same expectations. They expect you to be a prophet like Jeremiah. They expect you to be powerful like Elijah. They expect you to be a world changer like John the Baptist. That's what they expect you to do. So it's not just about who people think you are, and for us it's the same. It's not just about the expectations. It's not just about the identity people have given you. It's about the expectations they have for you as well. Because there are people in our lives, there are stories in our lives that have put expectations on us. And if we live up to them, everything's going to be fine. But if we don't, those around us who are trying to give us that identity will pull the rug right out from underneath us. And it forces us to answer that question, who do you think you are? Because there are these markers that we've gotten from people in our lives, whether it's family or friends or situations, that have put expectations on us, that have tried to tell us who we are. Some are scars, some are accolades, some are trophies, some are accomplishments. But ultimately, they all distract us from the reality of finding out, who are you really? Deep down, who do you think you are? And so maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're in a season of life that some things have changed, some things have shifted. And now you're having to ask that question again, who am I now? What am I going to do next? If you're a young parent and you've got a child that will not sleep, listen, if you want to find out who you are, Have a young child that won't sleep. The lack of sleep just brings who you are right to the surface. You're like, wow, that's ugly down there. Maybe you've been working for so long for this one job, and you've been pushing for the promotion, you've been pushing for this next status, and it's just not going to happen. So who are you now? Maybe you've been pouring your life and your energy and your finances and your time into this relationship, hoping this is finally going to be the one. And you have that conversation, and you hear those words, this isn't going to happen. So if you can't have that, who are you now? In those moments of crisis when we're trying to figure out who we are, there are some things we tend to do. There's some things we tend to do to try and discover our identity. And not all of them are great. And there are four of them that I noticed, but there may be more. The first one is we can actually get our identity by conforming. By conforming. We just find out what other people think we should be doing, and we live into that. We just find the standards that people have for us. For example, uh, most people, like pastors have a lot of expectations that people think. Like if you're a pastor, there's certain things that you do. For example, most people don't think that pastors listen to heavy metal. I happen to. I happen to listen to quite a bit of it. Actually, I was working on this talk in my office and people were walking by going, is that Iron Maiden? What's wrong with him? It's just something that I've always done and it's, you know, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it gets you going. That's not an expectation people have of pastors. There are expectations that people have of you as a parent, as a coworker, as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a brother. And you can just conform to those if you want. The problem with conforming is they don't all fit us. You may not be that kind of parent. You may not be that kind of friend. And so to conform to that just means we're going to try to be something that maybe we're not. Look, guys, let me talk to the guys in the room. There are a lot of expectations for guys. One expectation of guys is that we don't cry. 
Okay, what happens at Parkview stays at Parkview, right? We're all on board with this. I cry all the time. I've cried at every Disney movie I've watched in the last year. I don't even get to the, I'll cry at the trailers at this point, like Moana, you know, the waterworks start. I can't conform to that because that's not who I am. And so the problem with conforming is we try to be someone that we're not. And that's not who we're meant to be. So if it's not conforming, there's another way is we can do it by comparing. We can find someone else that we say, okay, I want to, that's who I'm going to be. I want to be like that person. And we just sort of work up to that level. And the reason this is a problem was I saw this, it's so clear in this commercial that I saw this past Christmas. So you see the snowy scene and there's the person's house and this husband leads his wife out into the driveway. And it must be Connecticut because they have pretty snow and it's not like Illinois snow. It's really pretty and it's falling gently and he takes her out in the driveway and there in the driveway is this Big, beautiful, luxury Lexus with a bow on top of it. Listen, for a second, how many of you have this happened to you? I mean, honestly, if you get a car for Christmas, it's probably like it's a 74 Honda because your sister's not going to drive it anymore. Merry Christmas. (laughs) And so they're standing next to this beautiful car, and she's overjoyed and her perfect white teeth and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, at that moment, another car comes down the street, and they both go, Oh, yeah. And it's perfectly displayed. Boy, I'm so glad you gave me a Lexus for Christmas, but I wish you had bought me that. So, see, getting our identity by comparing, the problem is there's always going to be a better car. There will always be another person we're working up to, and then all of a sudden somebody else comes along and goes, no, 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 I want to be like that. I want to be that person. I want to be that parent. I want to be that father or that spouse. When we get our identity by comparing, it's a moving target. We will never hit it. Not to mention the fact that nobody puts their real life on social media, right? You don't put your worst pictures on there. You only put your best up. So you don't see the fight that happens between this couple when they walk back in the house. And she's like, why didn't you buy me that car? You don't see that stuff. You don't see the worst of people. And so for us to try to get our identity by comparing ourselves to others, it's always going to be a moving target. And we will never hit it. And we'll never find out who we are. So we can't do it by conforming. Can't do it by comparing. We also try to do it by combating. And in combating, we say, I don't know who I am, but I'm going to tell you who I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be my father. I'm not going to be my mother. I'm not going to be this person in my life. And so we set up our whole life to try and not be like that person. And yes, maybe we get rid of some of the bad things that have been handed down to us. But listen, here's the reality. DNA always wins. Always. There will come a moment when we're staring in the mirror and we go, oh my gosh, I'm my father. I tell the same dumb jokes. I'm sagging in all the same places. (sighs) And, you know, if you're getting your identity by combating, that moment is a tremendous failure because you've tried your whole life not to be that person. And it's unavoidable. Or we just say, I'm just not going to be like anybody else. So if everybody likes that movie, I'm not going to like it. If everybody goes to that restaurant, I'm not going to go there. If everybody hates this thing, I'm going to be in it all the time. And at the end of the day, that's great, except for somebody says, who do you think you are? You say, well, I'm not that. They're like, great, then who are you really? We don't have an answer to that question. So we can't go by conforming. We can't go by comparing. We can't go by combating. So what's left? This is the one that I think is the most helpful. We find our identity by connecting. 
We find our identity by connecting to the God who made us, who shaped us, who knows us at the core of our being better than anyone else ever will. And that's why it's important. Because, listen, the world needs you. The world needs you and I to be the people we were made to be. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, the checkout person at the Jewel, they need you to be the person that you were designed to be. That's what's going to change the world. And the lovely thing about Jesus is he already knew who he was because there's this moment in his life where he's being baptized and it says this, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. What if the answer to the question of who do you think you are has something to do with connecting to the one who gets the opportunity and has the right and the privilege to tell you who you are? And the great thing is, the story Jesus tells us is that when God looks at us, whether we believe it or not, he says, that's my beloved kid in whom I'm well pleased. And no one can take that from them. And if that's your identity, you are unstoppable. Because you don't have to conform or compare or combat. That's who you are. No one can take it from you. And so Jesus walks into life with this understanding of who he really is deep down at the core. And so then he flips the question to his disciples and he says this, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is very important because if you don't know this, the guys who are with Jesus have given up their whole life. They've given up their jobs, they've given up their family, they've given up everything that they were going to do to walk and be with him. Because whatever they believe about him, they wanted to be true of them. You go hang out with someone that you want to be like. And so they gave up all that stuff to go be with him. So however they answer this question, who do you think I am? They're going to say something about who they want to be. And I love the guy who answers this question in the story is a guy named Peter who cannot shut up. But at least this time he gets it right. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, when Jesus says, who do you think I am? He's saying, what story do you buy into? And Peter responds, he says, you are the God who gets to name us. You are the one who gets to tell us who we are. You are the one who gets to tell us what God actually thinks of us. And we want to be around you so that we can live like that's true. We want to be around you so we can know what it's like to embrace that big and beautiful life. So before you made your first million or before your first bankruptcy, before your first marriage or your third marriage, before your first failure or your first success, God looked at you and said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Now connect with me so that you can live like that's true. Because if you live like that's true, you're unstoppable. There's nothing that you can't handle. There's nothing you can't approach. And it's not going to be easy But it will be different, and it will be better. God looks at you and says, you're my beloved. Would you like to live like that's true? And that's an amazing moment for us. So as we start to think about this identity thing, we got to think about who gets to name us. Because the early early followers of Jesus later on would take on this name, Christian. And all Christian means is little Christ. So they basically said, we want to be known as smaller versions of the one we follow. To look like him and act like him and do what he would do if he were here right now. So this leads us to think about a couple questions. The first one is this. What if we get our identity from the one who gets to name us? What would that be like? When we were pregnant, uh, getting ready to have, we weren't pregnant. My wife was pregnant. I was there. 
Um, I was part of it. I was part of the project. Um, when we were about to have our first daughter, I was having a conversation with, uh, with my parents, and I, and I was like, you know, we're thinking about names. Because listen, naming your kids is important, because you pick the wrong one in junior high is going to be a dumpster fire. Let's just be honest about that. So we were very serious about, let's pick a good name. So I was talking to my parents about that, and I said, well, what were some of the names you guys thought of for me? And they said, well, if you were a girl, we were going to name you Rhiannon. And I was like, well, that's different. But some of you in the room who are music fanatics, you know exactly where that came from. From the epic Fleetwood Mac album, Rumors, there was a song called Rhiannon, and they loved the song. I was like, cool, I want to be named after a Fleetwood Mac song. Until I researched who Rhiannon was. And in history, she was like this Celtic witch goddess who ran around hunting stuff down. <laughs> like slaying deer in the forest and things. Like, I don't know you want a teenage Rhiannon in your house. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's unstable riding around killing dogs in the neighborhood, I guess. But, so they said, well, you, you weren't born a girl. And I said, I appreciate the confirmation on that. Uh, I said, so what, if, I'd been a, if I hadn't been named Casey, what were you going to name me? And they said, well, we were going to name you Byron. And I'm like, Byron, that's an interesting name. I never really, never really thought about that. And then I thought, how different would I be if that were my name? Would it change me? You see, because names change us. What we are named by other people, especially the ones who get to do it, changes us. If I had been a girl, Andreanna, I would be a totally different person, obviously. If I had been a Byron, I would have been a to- probably been a totally different person. And here's the reality. Some of us have been named things that have changed our lives. Some of us have been named, I wish you'd never been born. Right? Some of us have been named, you did the wrong thing and now you are the wrong thing. Some of us have been named, you'll never be good enough for us or for God or for another man or for a woman. You'll never be enough. That's the name we've been given. And that is a toxic story to live in. But the good news that Jesus tells us is this. That is not how God sees you. Because before you believe a thing, the one who gets the right to name you says, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, and I am giddy about you. I'll laugh at your jokes when no one else does because I think they're funny. Because I made you. I know what's deep inside of you. I am the one who has the right to tell you who you are. Don't let any of those other voices tell you who you are. I have the right to do that. I get to do that because I'm the only one who is good at it. And so he calls us beloved. And it was so deep in the story that the early followers of Jesus started calling each other that. There's a passage in 1 John that says this. He addresses each other and says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. To each other they would say, don't forget. Don't forget who you are. You're one that God loves immensely and deeply and purely. Don't forget that. Because there's going to be a lot of people who want to tell you different. There'll be a lot of stories that want to convince you that that's not true. So what if that were your identity today? What if that were your identity as you went into the things that you went into? As you looked at your past, as you looked at your failed marriage, as you looked at your addictions, as you looked at your struggles, what if in the middle of that you would hear the voice of God saying, hey, just in case you want to know, regardless of all that other stuff, you're my beloved son still, my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased in you. This is not good, but you know that. Let's move forward differently. Like in the middle of the night, when those voices get really loud and they stir us from sleep and we pace the floor and we're not quite sure what we're going to do next and they start to become deafening. When they start to tell us a story that is not healthy, that is not true, 
I love that there's this deafening voice that comes from the other side. That God begins to speak very loudly and clearly and says, tell those voices to shut up because you're my kid. Don't ever forget that. You don't need to listen to those stories. I'm the one who gets to name you. No one else. So the question for you is, who do you think you are? Do you want to embrace that? Do you want to embrace who God thinks you really are? We all have that opportunity today. We all have that opportunity. You don't have to be a person who doesn't know your identity. Because God's made it pretty clear. This is who you are and this is who you'll always be. So wrap your arms around that. Let that be who you are. But not just that because we could stop there and be like, okay, uh, that's good. I'm beloved. I'm going to go hop in the car and get some coffee. Because there's a second chapter to that, because life doesn't exist in this room. Most of us live a real life outside of this place. So what do we do with that? Well, the question here is, what if we show that identity through what we give our lives to? What if we show that identity through what we give our lives to? I don't believe God's greatest plan for us is to have a weekend gig. I believe God's greatest plan for us is to flourish in everything that we do. In our relationships, in our work, in our communities, in our families, in the things that we think when we're driving. I believe that God wants us to flourish in those places. So it's great that we're all here. It's great that we gather together like this. It's awesome that we do that. But I want to tell you that the second half of that verse from John is really important. Because he says, what we will be has not yet been revealed. There's a chapter 2 to this story. He's saying, yes, wrap your arms around the fact that you're God's beloved, but just know it doesn't stop. We go forward. The best is yet to come. So when you leave this place and you carry that identity with you, it changes everything that we do. It changes how we think about what we do. It changes what we think about who we are. And gathering here reminds us of that, but then it sends us out. It sends us out to be different, to live differently. And I love the wisdom of the Bible and what that looks like. Paul says this, a guy named Paul says this in Colossians. He says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, word or deed, whether you say it or whether you do it, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name just means in the reality. So if you're going to accept the reality of Jesus that he says God thinks you're beloved and you get to live like that, then everything you do, do it in that reality. So when you brush your teeth, Brush your teeth in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know what that changes for you. Maybe you start flossing. I don't know. (laughs) Finally, dentists everywhere are like, oh, good form. Maybe, actually, I think the best, the most spiritual thing you and I could probably do this week is to drive in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Some of us would thank you very much if you begin to drive in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, Casey, what does that look like? Well, first of all, I think it starts with we change our hand signals. That's number one that we start. Number two, it means we use our actual signals, right? Number three is you begin to bless people by when the light turns green, turn right. Don't make us wait behind you. It's a spiritual discipline for us to drive behind you when you wait at the light when it's green. Go. That's just me. That's my own soapbox. Get moving. What if we did everything? everything in the reality that we are God's beloved and he is well pleased in us and that is unshakable and unstoppable. What can't you do if that's reality? What conversation, what confrontation, what inner work 
What relationship difficulty is too high if you live in the reality that you are one that God gets a kick out of? And no one can take that from you. So when your child has locked themselves in the bathroom and is declaring you to be the most evil human being on the face of the planet, as a parent, you can say, I parent now in the name of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) And what is going on here is not going to change my identity. It's going to change some things for them, but it's not going to change my identity. I'm one in whom he dwells and delights. I can do anything through him. Anything. When we go to the job site, when we go to our office or our cube, and we know that person is coming who drives us batty, that person that we'd like to take our Jesus and put him over here and go deal with that, right, violently perhaps, and then come back and get our Jesus and pick it back up again and be like, oh, that was so fulfilling. When that happens, we can handle that person in that situation knowing I am one who lives in the reality of being the beloved of God. And that doesn't change a thing. We can go to school, we can do our work without comparing or combating or conforming. We can say, I'm connected to the one who gets to name me and I am unstoppable. What would your week look like this week if that were true? Because you know what's coming. You came here today knowing exactly what's about to happen and knowing exactly what the cost of that's going to be. What if you could go differently? What if you could connect with this bigger story and step into this moment knowing that you have an unshakable identity? You should have gotten a name tag that kind of looks like this. Would you grab that for a second if you got one? If you didn't, you can be able to get one before you leave. I love name tags. I was at a conference this past week and everybody had them. I'm horrible with names, so when you're wearing a name tag, it's like a blessing to me. It's like, oh, hallelujah. Name tags are great because some people will write their names huge, (laughs) big letters, and some people write them really small. But a name tag is basically our way of telling the world who we are. I would love for you to take this and just look at the white space here for a second. Don't write any, if you already wrote your grocery list on here, that's fine. But just look at the white space for a second. And what I want you to do as you look at that white space is just imagine every name that you've been given over your life. The stories, the identities that people or situations have tried to give you. The name addict, the name failure, the name not good enough. The name unloved by God because you did something unloving. I want you to just think about those names here. And as you think about those, take a pen or something, whatever you have handy, and I want you to just write the word beloved on there. Because you see, when Jesus is baptized, there's this verse that I said before where God looks at him and says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. When God looks at you and he takes your name tag, that's the word he writes in this white space. So write that word in here. And whatever you need to do to keep this, put it in a place where you're going to see it every single day. If you're going to drive in the name of the Lord Jesus, put it over your speedometer, I guess. Or put it on your mirror. Put it in your car. If you want to peel it off and stick it to something that you know you're going to see, keep this with you so that in those moments when you want to combat or compare or conform, you're reminded you don't have to do that. You are the beloved in whom he's well pleased. You can connect with that today. I want to close by taking communion together like we do every week. And communion is just a reminder of anything, above everything else. It's a reminder That if we forget, 
if we lose track of who we are, if we lose track of our identity, we believe, oh, I'm not really the beloved. God really doesn't love us that much. It's a tangible reminder that when we ask that question, does God really love me? He says, here's bread and here's juice. Here's body and here's blood. If you want to know if I love you, this is how far I went. The depths of the love of God for his beloved kids went all the way to the destruction of Jesus' physical body. And so when we take this together, what we're doing is we're remembering what he did, but we're also remembering who we are. We are ones that God sees as valuable enough to die for. And that's a tremendous moment for us. So when we share in those elements, what we're reminded of is this. You're one that God loves more than anything else, and this is how far he'll go. So whatever's coming this week or whatever happened last week is what it is. Just remember, this is who you are. Nobody can take that from you. And then you get to deal with the better question. So how do we live now? I can't answer that one for you. So here in a moment, they're going to pass trays across. There are two cups, one inside the other. There is bread in the bottom. There's juice in the top. Take those cups and hold them. We're all going to take communion together. And you don't have to be from Parkview. You don't have to be a member of Parkview. If you're chasing after Jesus, we welcome you because this is not our table. It's his. And Jesus has extended the invitation and said, if you want to be part of me, come. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you're my beloved. Just come. Come to the table. Let's be a part of this together. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for this moment. Thank you for the fact that you call us your beloved sons and daughters no matter what. And so let us live in that reality. And as we take this moment to just pause and remember through bread and juice, through body and blood, how far you've gone to love us. Let us remember that and let us live into that in this coming week. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.